Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, traders, wherever you may be on planet Earth. We are coming at you with the 62nd episode of the Performante podcast. This one is a special one. We're going to be talking about the I word. It's been thrown around in mass media, all over the news. Is inflation coming? Is it already here? Should there be a prefix hyper in front of it? We're at the inflection point, in our opinion, in terms of the global market macro, and we're looking at monetary supply. And so on August 19th, 2021, we wanted to dedicate an episode to inflation. The monetary system is in a pretty awful trajectory at this point in time. It's requiring more and more money to be printed to sustain itself. And so we wanted to overview kind of the, the dynamics in play from the Federal Reserve, from a policy perspective, and help you guys have a better understanding of global monetary dynamics. So my name is Nathan with Performante, and I'll pass it on over to Keith, who will dive on in. Awesome. Well, welcome, everyone. We're going to jump straight into it and talk a little bit about repo operations and reverse repo operations. Um, kind of Nathan and I were talking a little bit earlier how this isn't getting that much coverage, considering how much action or how much um, uh, overall money is flowing into the reverse repo operations. So um, just as a quick overview uh, what a repo or reverse repo operation is, is it's basically um, a short-term collateralized loan. And on the chart here or on the picture here, we can see that reverse reper uh, repurchase agreements for institutions buying financial assets. Basically, the financial asset owner would be like a major bank, like one of the big banks in America. They would provide financial assets um, for cash because they are looking for cash. Financial institutions are looking to borrow cash to purchase other uh, treasury securities, but right now banks are pretty in short of cash and those demands are not matching what the um, overall market is looking for in terms of being able to buy treasuries. So what happens is the Federal Reserve comes to the rescue and injects usually billions if not trillions of dollars worth of United States dollar in exchange for those short-term treasury bills. And they're basically like buying back what they initially provided to the market because the Fed needs to provide those treasury bills uh, in order for new money to get created. And once the cycle ends, they buy back those treasury bills from the market. Um, and that's kind of where that MMT mindset comes in, where if the Federal Reserve is able to basically create cash and they're able to buy back the bonds they created, um, they can kind of do that forever. And that's where MMT comes in. But it's a pretty interesting thing. In short, um, it's a short-term collateralized loan. And I actually see the loans here in the next chart. Um, this is the repo and reverse repo operations straight from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And this is the amounts for the cash that is getting either provided to the bank or in return. This is just for the initial sending of the funds. So we can see this dates back from really the present day, around August 18th, we have over a billion dollars or a trillion dollars here because um, this is the amount in billions and this is just for August 18th, one single day of providing liquidity, which is the US dollar to these large institutions. And then on August 17th, same thing, over a trillion dollars submitted and the same amount accepted. Um, and we can see on the 16th, same thing, over a trillion dollars. So. Uh, in our previous podcast yesterday, we talked about how the Fed was basically providing over a trillion dollars a day to these large institutions. And it's pretty unbelievable to see. Now, 
not all of this is going to go on the balance sheet. Like if they don't get paid in full, um, that wouldn't obviously um, go back to the zero mark. So there would be some addition to the balance sheet, but they are getting paid back because looking at the previous um, image here, uh, we th they do actually provide cash plus the repo interest, which is the interest um, incurred for the borrowing to start with. So not all of it, not all the trillion dollars are gonna be put on the balance sheet, but if they do not pay back, they will. And any, let's say like the infrastructure bill that Biden put through and all the stimulus that happened prior to what we're seeing right now is this chart here, the monetary base. Um, so this is basically the amount of United States dollars that is in circulation. And just to kind of give you a little bit of perspective, um, before the global financial crisis, we saw the monetary base sitting at around, let's say just under a trillion dollars in the total monetary base. And this was in the late summer, early fall of 2008. At this point right now, we're hitting around, let's say five trillion. So we've basically five x from 2008 up until where we are currently right now, a little bit over a decade. So it's pretty unbelievable to what we're seeing here. Um, you got any thoughts on just the massive amount of expansion there, Nathan? One thing that I keep in mind that I think most people have a hard time conceptualizing is that their basic unit of denomination is usually billions of dollars. When we're talking about these repo operations, they it's just 1,115 billion dollars. It's hard to conceptualize how much money that actually is, but when we are looking at the monetary base total, that specifically is in millions of dollars on the Federal Reserve St. Louis website. And so obviously this is kind of the place you need to go to get this information is from the Federal Reserve because the mass media is likely not going to be feeding it to you on a spoon, A, because it's probably not in their best interest, and B, because there might be some kind of superimposed bias with this information. And so in our opinion, that's why we think understanding modern money theory and macroeconomics is crucial to navigating financial markets because it allows you to have a different perspective and understand the bigger picture in play. Specifically, obviously, we're big crypto bulls and we have what we perceive to be a strong understanding of how crypto intersects with the larger financial markets. But as these reverse repos come out at trillions and trillions of dollars a day, we're seeing this come to fruition. We've been talking about hyperinflation basically since the birth of Performante all the way back in 2018. Mm -hmm. We've been keeping an eye on monetary expansion, keeping an eye on smaller countries that like Venezuela or Turkey that are kind of case studies, Japan as well from the demographic perspective. And now it sucks to say, but we're kind of seeing all the pieces come together in terms of the currency devaluation as as a product of the proliferation needed to keep the economy afloat and sustainable. And so obviously on this episode, we're going to be talking about a, a few of these key metrics and we just needed to lay down the groundwork, like what is a repurchase, what is a reverse repurchase and kind of understanding how these influence the monetary base before we dive in deep, before we dive in deeper into this inflation talk. Yeah, definitely really well said. Um, kind of looking at what happened in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, just bringing up uh, what you mentioned, I think is a really good thing to look at because, for example, in Venezuela, the 
amount of volume that took place in 2017 was really the peak. I haven't checked recently since 2021, um, but in 2020 I did check and the basically the um, most amount of volume that took place for basically every single country was in the peak of 2017 at the end of the previous bull cycle, which makes sense, right? There's more hype, there's more excitement, hope, optimism, kind of makes sense. But when you're looking at Venezuela, the most amount of transactions that took place is actually the peak of the inflation period for that country, not the peak of 2017. Um, the peak of 2017 was a tiny blip compared to what we saw in terms of the transactions when there was significant inflation in the country of Venezuela. So I think um, if you are looking at the adoption when there's basically nowhere else to go, like if you're positioned where you either have to use gold and silver, like physical gold and silver, or you're going to be using this digital money that can be transacted very quickly, easily. It's portable, it's divisible. What are you really going to use? So I think it's a really good case study, like Nathan said, to kind of have an understanding of where humans are going to go. You know, at the end of the day, humans are humans. If they have a major issue, you know, their native currency is devaluing at a significant rate what has people done before? And I think that's the underlying question that we're trying to figure out is in the past, what has, what's, what's gone down, right? What's, what's happened before? So I think in this overall podcast, we'll be able to answer that. And obviously we're throwing in a completely new disruptive technology that the world has never seen before because we've never encountered a major inflationary period in a first world country while having cryptocurrencies as a possible solution instead of gold and silver and you know venezuela zimbabwe are good case studies but with a major country like the united states with their world reserve currency it'd be interesting to see how it plays out especially with like all the different currencies attached to the united states dollar because of the bretton woods and then in 1971 when the bretton woods system was abolished all the currencies in the world basically were pegged to the dollar and the dollar is now a free floating fiat currency and that's really where the fiat currency printing pl proliferation has started. So kind of getting back into the expansion of the currency in the United States here, uh, we can see this is a good chart um, or a good list of countries as well as the percentage change in the last three months in the last 12 months. So you can see all these different countries here. I just highlighted the USA and I think percentages is a lot easier to understand instead of billions or trillions of dollars because there's not really anything to provide perspective or like a comparison to. But if we're looking at in terms of percentage, the increase that we saw in the last 12 months, it's around 12.7% increase in the monetary base just in the past 12 months. Um, and we're seeing that increase over time. So it's not a small amount that we're increasing the monetary base by. 12% is a significant amount, right? You do that for eight, nine years and you're basically, you're doubled. So it doesn't take very long. Um, so now we're moving on to the different chart. I just thought that that would be a good representation instead of talking about billions and trillions to talk about percentages there. All right, so um, this is a pretty interesting one here. This is the United States inflation rate. Um, a lot of people want to talking about it absolutely popping off recently, going into like the 5%, but looking at a larger time frame, we can see that it is relatively stable um, to some degree. We can see it increasing right here. But the next chart 
is what's actually going to provide a lot more context from a larger perspective because if you're looking at the inflation in a small time frame yeah it goes up it goes down it's not that crazy but when you're looking at like let's say the early 70s and the late 70s it's a completely different story um, so we'll move on to the next one. So this is, in my opinion, something that is providing a lot more context because it's not just what we see in inflation, but it's what the government is looking for because at the end of the day, it is a centralized structure that we have. The Federal Reserve gets to completely decide what the interest rates are going to be for the entire nation. It's a centralized system. And we've seen deflation less than the 2% inflation that they're looking for for the past um, little over a decade. So in the most recent FOMC discussion, they were talking about how, because we've been seeing deflationary uh, environments for the past basically two decades, we are open to having higher than 2% inflation for the coming years because we've seen so much deflation or less than expected inflation in the past decade. And that's a very, very dangerous discussion. Um, you got anything to add there, Nathan? Yeah, like when we're doing the mathematical averages, I feel like it doesn't quite crunch out the way that they're wanting it to. It's like, yeah, we want it below the red line. We want it below 10%. That's the personal goal. If we were under 2% for a while, that means we can be over 2%, right? And I think that's kind of the bias that they're going to be operating on when they are deciding how to, in quotations, fix the current state of the economy. Because realistically... There's been a certain trajectory that we've been on basically since 1971, but now all the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. And I think them saying, hey, if we're above the red line, it's cool now. It's kosher. We don't got to worry about it. We won't put it on mass media. We won't, we won't panic the public. We're just going to do our thing and hopefully no one notices. <laughs> and that's kind of, I feel like, the way Jay Powell has been operating recently. It feels like they are aiming for an average inflation target of 2% on the long run. And in the short term, they're just going to say, fuck it, whatever happens, happens. They're just going <laughs> to let the ball roll and do what needs to get done because we're in such uncharted territory when it comes to these advanced applications of modern money theory with modifications of interest rates and repurchases. This is a very unproven experiment. We're operating on assumptions that haven't been proven only operating on things that have happened in the past and how we've navigated these certain financial environments and emulating them in the future. And so realistically, it's an experiment with results we can't emulate or can't reproduce with certainty. There, in any, for example, in astrophysics, you know there's an answer to the problem you're trying to solve. It's concrete, it's objective, you plug numbers in, you get numbers out. When we're working with financial markets, Markets, it's different and there's a really good book that talked about this called the psychology of money it was released in 2020 so it's very up-to-date and very accurate and it talks about kind of different financial environments that we've experienced basically since the gold standard disappeared and in this circumstance it seems like it's an a an experiment and b we don't we can't say with certainty what will happen because so much of financial markets is dependent on psychology how people interact and how people perceive different world events and so in the instance that astrophysics is tangible number in number out financial markets cannot operate on the same assumption because there's always the unknown factor of human psychology yeah that's extremely well said um i completely agree the fed and other central banks 
think that they have all the power. Like, they probably think that they're gods at this point. They could print money out of thin air. It has value. They could buy whatever they want. But when you're looking at it from a century or greater time frame, you can see all fiat currencies do inevitably go to zero. So, yes, there are new financial instruments that we're able to utilize and use and we're... we're at the peak of the technological age that makes sense compared to previous time frames obviously but at the end of the day you can't print money out of nothing you can't create value from absolutely nothing that's like the underlying statement that is seeming to be have uh made a statement for for every single currency you know, if it's backed by gold it lasts um these these um huge uh i guess uh not uh, cultures but these I guess you could say cultures. These long cultures have stood the test of time lasting 500 years, you know, 800 years because they had a very strong currency. And an economy of a nation is really tied to the strength of their currency. Um, if the currency is very strong, well used, has high liquidity, it's going to be a strong nation. But if the country's currency is slowly deteriorating, it's faltering, people are not seeing the same level of purchasing power, they're losing confidence in it, that's when things really start to fall. And it's going to be a very devastating fall for the U.S. because not only are they at a pretty high peak in terms of status uh, relative to the other countries, but they are the number one currency in the world, you know, reserve world, world reserve currency. You can't you can't get any higher than that. You are the ultimate status symbol in terms of a currency. And no one wants to be second place, especially not the United States. So talking a little bit um, more about the actual inflation numbers, um, maybe in the news you have heard about it, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. This is how a lot of basically based, uh, mo most everyone is looking at inflation. Yes, inflation numbers um, is a little bit different, but the CPI is basically a calculation that adds up a certain list of goods and services and sees the price change from previous years. The, the key thing with the CPI, because we have seen it relatively low compared to the actual uh, amount of inflation, is they change it quite regularly. Um, I don't exactly know with the United States. I did read a fact that in the last 25 years, they changed it like 20 or 21 times. I don't exactly know, but I did see for the Canadian Central Bank, they are updating the CPI every two years. And from the government's perspective, you're not going to want to make it seem like there's more inflation and your country's currency is weaker and you're basically stealing more of your nation's individual's money. You don't want that to happen, right? <laughs> Why would you want that to happen? So you're going to twist it and change the calculation to make it seem like there is less inflation. And I think that's why the CPI at this point is kind of a useless measure because yes, it does show the percentage difference in the basket of goods in the previous year versus this year. But because it changes so frequently, if you're looking at it from a larger perspective, there's no actual concrete data there because if you're just changing the calculation every single every every other two years you're not really able to use the previous data to compare what's happening right now um, so it's basically a complete waste of time looking at the cpi at this point um, the main thing that we are wanting to look at 
is the interest rates. Because if the interest rate starts to rise, you know the central banks are worried. Um, but as of right now, we can see on this chart right here, interest rates have been falling since the 1980s, like Nathan initially talked about. That was when our previous major inflation push occurred, was in the mid 70s to the late 70s. And since the early 80s, we've been seeing decreasing interest rates basically almost every single year from 1980 all the way until right now where we've seen extremely extremely low interest rates at basically zero percent there are they're artificially lowered if it was market value i don't exactly know where they are but they would be sure hell of a lot higher than they currently are right now and there is a reaction to the actions taken with these artificially suppressed interest rates and this next chart will provide a really good illustration of that. So it's a little bit, uh, there's a lot on here, but the main thing that we want to keep an eye on is kind of around the 1930s all the way until the 1980s. Because this is that massive uh, 1929 crash and then World Great Depression right here, 1929. This is when the Great Depression occurred and then World War II. So central banks all over the world, but primarily in the United States, were heavily indebted, they spent a lot on the war, and they needed to lower interest rates in order to basically make it easier for them to print money to fund the war. Um, so they had a lot of debt, and this was right after the world, so it was a feel-good time for America. You know, they were at, at the end of World War II, they were the superpower. You know, that was uh, really when the United States dollar was at its very peak. A lot of the other countries were already fighting in the war for years before the United States came in uh, World War II. And once they came in, it was already like halfway or further down the war. So they didn't really participate as much as like uh, UK, for example. So at the end of World War II, the United States was at its peak, but they had very low interest rates. So this is when there was artificial stimulus and there was extremely low interest rates, kind of what we're in right now. And it was a feel good period. You know, the 50s and 60s were the time for the United States. But then once the inflation started coming in, when people started realizing that the amount of gold in reserves was not matching up with the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation, that's when inflation started worrying. And then other countries demanded an exchange with U.S. dollars for their gold that they were basically promised. And once enough countries asked for their gold from the United States, the United States said, oh, well, we don't have enough gold for the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation. So then they literally just cut ties for gold to be able to transfer from United States to, to gold. So they completely cut the tie between the U.S. dollar and gold. And that's where things started to really go downhill in terms of a global macro perspective, because then we're on an entire fiat currency system, which they can print an unlimited amount of fiat currency for. But the kind of underlying chart, um, the underlying statement for this chart is we see massively low interest rates and a lot of stimulus that breeds massive inflationary periods because you can't have a feel good period. You're printing more money than you're able to pay back. That just is a environment you can't have forever. At a certain point, the velocity of currency will increase, meaning the amount of times a currency is in circulation will increase. The velocity of one currency will increase more and more and more. So then that will also increase the amount of money in circulation. So then that will also add to the inflation trade. And then at that point, no one wants to hold their currency because they know that purchasing an Apple a week from now is going to cost more than purchasing Apple right now. 
So then everyone wants to get rid of their currency and go into something that is actually tangible. And that's where these massive pushes come in for gold and silver in the past, because those are the true assets that have stood the test of time for what we classify as money. Um, it does take a long time before that final move to the upside for the gold and silver prices and the overall precious metals, because that needs to be a point where there's almost all hope lost for the United States dollar. As of right now, I still think that there's a lot of hope on the dollar because it is still the fear trade. If there's fear, uncertainty, worry in the market, you see the United States dollar increase, you see the DXY, which is a comparison against all the other currencies, you see that move up. So when there's global fear, global investors are still parking their cash in the United States dollar. If that changes, we'll see a complete shift in the global macro environment because the world reserve currency is not going to be the number one currency to get into. But um, as of right now, I do think that we're in that feel-good period and we're slowly going to see the increase in inflation in, in real terms, like in the gas we buy and the food we purchase. Um, we've already seen it in like the real estate and the education, but this is what's really going to be hurting a lot of people is not the things that are options, but it's a necessity. Yeah, I feel like once there's that turning point of the velocity increasing, that's really where we see these stores of value, these conceptual safe holds begin to balloon in price. I mean, just looking at the quick price of gold and silver, we can see that there's a pretty high correlation between the performance of these assets and relative times of inflation at these specific points in time. And so like Keith mentioned earlier, we have yet to go down this scientific experiment of what if we have digital gold when push comes to shove and we see inflation increase and we see velocity of money increase and we continue down the current trajectory. Our basic thesis is that, hey, if we have a digital version of gold that is more transportable, is cheaper to operate, is more fungible, all the benefits that come with using a cryptocurrency as a store of value, our thesis is that, hey, it should appreciate at a similar rate as if it wasn't like a digital currency. Like in this instance, it should perform as an analog to gold. And so that's really basically the speculation that I think most cryptocurrency investors are operating on when we are talking about the intersection between cryptocurrency and inflation with fiat cash. Yeah, definitely well said. And to kind of touch on what you already talked about um, for the prices of gold and silver, just as uh, something to take away to understand the true aggressiveness that these precious metals were appreciating at during this inflationary push. In 1971, really kind of at the start when inflation started to get a little bit um, worrisome for the United States, Gold per ounce was at, let's say, under $300, 250 260 It was under $300 in around the 1970s. Flash forward to the peak of the inflation in 1980, basically one decade after the low, it went from under $300 all the way to 2000 and basically 2200 2300 somewhere around there. And that was in a single decade move. And, and that was for gold. Silver appreciated at a greater rate. In 1971, in around the summer, we see that silver was around $10. And in the peak of the inflation trade, in around 1979, we see it at around $110. So these are 
altcoin explosive moves we're talking about. Yes, altcoins can do that in like a year, some some of them. Um, but the explosiveness is something that's hard to catch if you're not prepared for it. And I think that's where a lot of people are kind of kind of heading is they don't really understand money. Like for the people who are listening, they probably do because you're listening, which is fantastic. Um, but for the people who are just saving in their savings account, making 1% or 0.1% a year on, on the cash that they have, they are absolutely screwed. So being a little bit more aware, you know, maybe, maybe reaching out to a friend, um, kind of discussing and having an open mind when talking about money and, and talking about what actual hard money is would be a huge benefit to the people around you because we've seen devastating inflationary periods in the past like not even in third world countries look at um germany what happened in between the first world war and the second world war they had the worst inflation the weimar republic hyperinflation if you don't know what it is check it out uh, we're not going to dive into it in this podcast but that was a uh, situation where they had to pay back a lot of uh, a lot of countries and they just printed their way out of it kind of similar to what we're seeing right now they initially didn't have inflation Right, kind of what we're seeing right now had they had light inflation, but once the can is so to speak kicked as far as it can down the road, there comes a tipping point. There comes an inflection point. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So I'll let uh, Nathan kind of wind up the rest of the episode, and um, thank you very much for tuning in. Hey there, uh, Nathan. I don't believe that you're on here right now, but uh, oh, sorry, I was uh, sorry, I was muted there. Just I uh, had some background noise going on. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, so there are some changes in motion with the modern global economy, and ultimately, they are kind of scary to think about because once these changes are in motion, it's kind of the more awake you are to them, the better off you are. But really, learning about it is the first step and kind of being aware of these changes, planning for them and making the appropriate financial moves is the best way to prepare for the trajectory of the modern economy. It's super scary to think about about where the economy is going relative to where it has been in the past. But com discomfort breeds success and ultimately the more you understand about the global financial system, the better you can prepare for it and the brighter your future will be. So surely you, you may have learned a thing or two. If you'd like to stay in touch, I'd recommend joining our discord. We kind of follow stuff like the U S dollar pretty regularly. We talk about these inflationary events, the repo operations. And so there will be a link in the description, or you can visit our website at performante.ca to generate your own discord invite. Uh, we appreciate the time you've taken to listen. Uh, obviously, we're just rambling about inflation, covering different points, but we're just trying to do our best to ensure that everyone understands the global dynamics in play and can make the appropriate decisions for their own portfolio. So it has been August 19th. We'll end the episode there. Take care and stay safe, everyone.